everyone. Welcome to Know to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. And with me is Dr. Andy Norman, PhD, who directs the Humanism Initiative at Carnegie Mellon University as the founder of the Cognitive Immunology Research Collaborative. He's the author of the book, Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think, published by HarperCollins in 2021. And as a public philosopher, Andy's writing has also appeared in national publications such as Scientific American, Skeptic, The Humanist, Free Inquiry, and Psychology Today, where he's a regular contributor. All right, Dr. Norman, thanks. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Joe. Um, I read Psychology Today religiously. I've, I've read a few articles by you. I, I appreciate your work. I appreciate you joining us. Um, as our regular listeners know, our resident expert, Norm Gayford, is out. Um, so sticking with our pattern of only having people with the name Norman for guests, we will, <laughs> we'll press on. <laughs> let's, okay. uh, let's the Norman, Norman invasion, huh? Yeah, yeah. So let's start out. Um, why don't you plug yourself and your work? Go ahead and tell us who you are, what it is you do, and uh, whatever you think is relevant before we dive into uh, cognitive immunology. Uh, sure. Yeah. So again, my name is Andy Norman. I'm a philosopher by training. Uh, I taught for many years at uh, both in upstate New York at Hamilton College, not far from where Joel sits right now, I think, uh, and more recently at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. Uh, and so I've recently released a book called Mental Immunity, uh, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. And it's about how minds ward off bad ideas and why they sometimes fail to do that. And most importantly, how we can strengthen our minds' immune systems so that infectious ideas uh, don't unhinge our thinking. And I think whether you're on the left or the right, religious or conservative, you can agree there's a lot of unhinged thinking these days. And so my book is an attempt to diagnose the root causes of that and prescribe practical solutions that can help us navigate past our hyperpartisan times. That's fantastic. It's super exciting. I can't wait to, to dive into some of it. So why don't you give the, the listeners an overview of what cognitive immunology is then? I, that was kind of the, the macro view. Um, what are some, some details you can fill in for us? Yeah, so cognitive immunology is my term for the science of mental immunity. And this is a science that is only emerging in our, in our time. Uh, so here's the basic premise. Our bodies have immune systems and they function to protect us against infectious microbes. And in just the same way, our minds have immune systems, but they function to protect us against infectious ideas. Um, and just as bodily immune systems can function well or poorly, mental immune systems can function well or poorly. And under the right conditions, uh, exposed to the right vaccines, for example, uh, body can develop new immunities to dangerous pathogens. And in just the same way, you can actually train a mind to fight off mind parasites that might otherwise disable it. Uh, that, that last phrase probably deserves uh, a comment. The concept of mind parasites is also something relatively new on the cultural scene. Um, the evolutionary psychologist Richard Dawkins wrote about mind viruses back in the 1990s. And of course, that idea is related to his notion of memes. The concept of meme has become, has gone mainstream, but the concept of mind viruses has not. 
And uh, I actually argue in the book that mind viruses, actually I call them mind parasites, but mind parasites are ubiquitous. Every single one of us is infected by some of them. And they've been flying low under the radar because they go by the name bad idea. And every single one of us harbors bad ideas and we need to get better at spotting and removing them if we hope to become wiser. Excellent. Yeah, so you mentioned a lot of things already that um, the listeners are going to be pretty familiar with. We talked about um, Mary Midgley last week, who had a sort of a long running feud with Richard Dawkins um, about, you know, what the role of science um, could be with philosophy, which is something mm -hmm. I'd be interested to hear your opinion on, you know, where because you're a, a, a philosopher of science by trade, right? Correct. Yeah. So, you know, the questions that that science can answer, what it can answer, how it how it can be beneficial. We did an episode on the philosophy of science or, you know, philosophy in science uh, a few weeks ago. So these are all things that are pretty fresh, pretty fresh in listeners uh, heads. Um, and I you said something in, in another interview I was watching with you, um, which was, you know, the big work of philosophy is really um, defining things. Right. You know, it's, it's yeah. taking these words and figuring out what they mean. So yeah. how would you define an immune system? How, how, do, we, how do we conceptualize that? Yeah, um, so actually we end, the way to define it is uh, on analogy with the way biologists define biological immune systems. So uh, it turns out the, immune, the body's immune system is enormously complex and it actually comprises several quite different subsystems. And so the way biologists define it is, is as just a, a body's wherewithal for fighting off dangerous parasites and such. So um, there are T cells, there are B cells, there are white blood cells, there are phagocytes and, and microphages. There are many different subsystems that contribute to our bodily immune health. And so I'm going to define a mind's immune system similarly by saying that uh, a mind's wherewithal for spotting and removing bad ideas constitutes its immune system. Now, that definition doesn't make it a spatially contiguous chunk of matter. Um, but that shouldn't disqualify us from recognizing it as real and important because lots of things in this world um, aren't just discrete chunks of matter, uh, and yet they're still quite important. Think about languages and norms and values and uh, right, all of these uh, numbers, all of these things exist in some way, and they're very important to understand them, even though they're not easily reducible to a materialistic, in materialistic terms, right? Right, exactly. So all of our regular listeners, this is old hat to them because the, the most common complaint we get about the show is you guys, you guys never get anywhere because we always start, we take a subject and we start driving down and driving down. What you realize is that trying to identify, you know, trying to describe a word or describe a concept, um, oftentimes it comes down to trying to triangulate the truth, really. You're trying to say, okay, well, what do these words mean? What do these concepts mean? And, and what, what are we trying to express through sort of the crude means of language um, that's going on? And it sounds like a, immunity is sort of a similar Similar thing. Yeah, let me let me offer a thought here too that might help. Um, and this is something I try to do in the book. Most people in this world uh, are what I call implementers. They want to get stuff done. 
uh, and we philosophers are are what my wife calls flaming clarifiers, which means we're we're sometimes that means we're so busy clarifying that we never get anything done. <laughs> right. Yeah. But but there's a role in this world for clarifiers and for clarifying, and and here's why: um, if we don't sharpen our concepts, a lot of times we just spin our wheels or we waste our a ton of effort. What philosophers are really good at is testing different ways of conceiving or thinking about things and trying to see how things might play out if we do define, things, say, a word of a certain way. So uh, philosophy is actually the incubator of the sciences. Every branch of the sciences was once once belonged to philosophy until a philosopher came along and said, hey, well, let's look at it this way and define a couple of key concepts this way. That'll become the conceptual foundations and bingo, linguistics happens or psychology is spins off as a new discipline. Right. So, so, so um, not many people have the patience to kind of play with definitions and test them the way philosophers do. But in our time, uh, we have a f many people fail to appreciate how important that work can be for our long-term collective prospects. We actually have to invest time and effort in clarifying key concepts if we hope to progress uh, as a species. Yeah, yeah, because philosophy is kind of the foundation of these sciences. So if you get the foundation wrong, you're not going to be able to build anything on it very well. <laughs> exactly. Um, so one thing I noticed um, with other interviews you've done is it seems like some interviewers are sort of confused about um, this idea of mental immunity. Um, it, it's is so I'll I'll ask the question I'll let you expound it. So is the concept of cognitive immunology a metaphor or not? Is it is it a concrete thing? Yeah, well, it strikes almost everyone as a metaphor first and foremost, and and in fact I've defined it in a way that suggests that it's that I'm employing a metaphor to define the concept. But a lot of term, a lot of concepts that end up literal start off that way. So the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said that language is a mobile army of metaphors. And what he meant by this is that when you're trying to get your head around a new subject, a lot of times a metaphor is the best you can do. And then every once in a while, a metaphor proves so useful and is used so commonly that people drop the scare quotes and just start thinking of it as, as literal. Think about electrical current. Current was a metaphor drawn from fluid dynamics, but it helped us to understand electricity. So now we talk about electrical current and it's no longer thought of as a metaphor. It's thought of as literal. Right. The exact same thing happens time and again in the history of science and in philosophy. Um, and our language evolves in the process. So I would say that the idea of a of the mind's immune system is in the process of actually becoming literal. And the same thing is true of, I think, the concept of mind parasites. Um, a lot of us are reluctant to think of our minds as host, hosting parasites. But when we get over our squeamishness about it, I think we're going to find that that word is, those concepts are enormously useful and that they can help us learn to fight off cognitive contagion. Yeah, man, that was, that was a really perfect, um, you know, outlining of where it stands as far as being a metaphor or a concrete sort of um, subject. I think where where it's hard for people is, like you said, um, you know, philosophy, you're sort of um, trailblazing, right? And so some of these terms for things don't exist. So you're drawing on things that, that you are aware of, that other people are aware of. Um, I think where 
the cognition and immunity sort of becomes um, sort of blurry for people is that with a lot of other immune systems, you have um, sort of clarified antibodies and you know pathogens and these sorts of things. With the mind, it's all the electrical current, right? You have neurons and dendrites and things that are, are sort of so you know. Well, where's where's the bad the bad guys and the good guys? And it's you know it's harder to uh, conceptualize than it is the other immune system. Well, I mean, I think I can help there too. Um, so the bad guys, the mind parasites, are bad ideas, and there are many different kinds of bad ideas. There there are ideas that are false. Um, they're bad in one way. And there are ideas that don't serve human interests well. I think about extreme forms of tribalism that just turn humanity against one another. Those are dysfunctional ideas. Think about white supremacist, right, ideas. Mm -hmm. Those ideas are divisive and fundamentally antithetical to human flourishing. In fact, they don't even serve white supremacists well. But even though some people think they, they do. Um, ideas like that are, in fact, I argue, mind parasites. They deserve to be called that, recognized as that. They certainly spread in an infectious viral fashion sometimes. Um, take me back to your question. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm getting oh, to yeah, yeah. my train of thought <laughs> once in a while. That's all right. So what I was saying is that um, with, with other um, immune systems within the body, you have um, pathogens and antibodies. Yeah, sorry. So... so uh, uh, I would argue that uh, bad ideas are the bad guys. The good guys are the antibodies of the mind, namely questions and reasons. So questions, I think, are a very interesting kind of antibody that can do a great deal. So th think, about, think about what happens in your mind when, say, somebody makes a really, somebody suggests you do something really stupid, right? Just objections swarm into your mind. Well, a Russian zoologist discovered the body's antibodies when he examined uh, white blood cells rushing to the scene of an injury in a starfish larva and swarming around the, the thorn that he had jabbed it with and trying to consume it. The exact same thing happens in our minds when a really stupid idea or a really um, dangerous idea or a really threatening piece of information enters. Um, questions and challenges and objections swarm to the scene and try to neutralize the information that appears to be threatening. You can watch this playing out in the same way that Metchnikov watched it play out on a microscope slide, just by paying attention to what happens in your mind when you experience challenging new information. Um, so I think there are, we, we, we can actually add substance to the idea of the, good, the battle between the good guys and the bad guys and learn to think more clearly about it. And in the same way that we had to think more clearly about, say, influenza or smallpox in order to eradicate, to control the flu and eradicate smallpox. In the exact same way, we have to think more clearly and more concretely uh, about bad ideas and the challenges and questions and reasons that we can bring to bear to fight them off. We have to understand how the process of testing ideas and weeding out the bad ones works so that we can become so that our mental immune systems can get stronger uh, and better at what they're supposed to be doing. 
Gotcha. So yeah, so in the case of influenza, um, you know, before we had microscopes or anything, you could still tell somebody was sick. They were presenting symptoms and you could find ways to ameliorate it. Um, so in this case, you know, if we don't have the things to look at it, you can still say, okay, well, a bad idea comes, you have the questions, the antibodies that swarm. And down the road, and not even down the road, probably in process, we do have um, that microscope um, in the forms of fMRI imaging, probably, right? Because I've seen some studies where they've said, all right, when you present somebody information that gives them cognitive dissonance, which parts of the brain light up versus when Good. somebody's thinking about something with their prefrontal cortex, you, know, you get a lot more emotion, you know, yeah. so you're kind of looking at it and you can. So looking at it that way, um, the whole thing might be electrical impulses and that might make it sort of hard to identify the good guys and the bad guys. But science is in the process of parsing out the ability to see, okay, here's when here's a, a mind parasite and what your brain activity would look like. And here is somebody actually, you know, examining a concept and putting forth the mental effort to, to see if it's true or not. Yeah, I mean, philosophers have been sort of struggling to figure out how minds fit into a, a world of physical stuff for a long time, right? And and it turns out that minds are sort of, in, are probably best understood as information theoretic phenomena. There's something generated by information processing organs like the brain, right? Uh, and because almost all of, the, so information always has to be encoded in some physical form, electrical impulses, marks on a piece of paper, ones and zeros in a on a hard drive, right? Information has to have a physical encoding, but it doesn't have to take any one in physical encoding. You can take an electrical encoding of the idea, I think therefore I am, translate it into a, uh, a set of marks on paper and it'll still express the same idea. Hmm. Right. Right. So there's there's something in which the the written words I think therefore I am, and the electronic coding of I think therefore I am, there's something they have in common. They're they're both an encoding of something, the same thing, and that's what makes them. And that, that that's that's true of all information, <clears throat> and it's true of all mental phenomena, beliefs, desires, um, these are things that don't take tangible form, but they're encoded in something that is tangible, namely the brain. Right. Yeah, and that's real interesting. We've been talking a lot about that recently on the podcast, you know, the idea of, of dualism and, and monism and, and some of these other things. So, um, all right. So I think that you've done a good job um, explaining cognitive immunology and sort of um, the concepts behind it. Let's look at some of the formative um, questions. As as a philosopher of science, what was your process for developing the theory? So it actually came out of my attempts to teach critical thinking. Um, I was busy teaching critical thinking to some students in upstate New York. This was back in the early 90s. And the students were kind of bored and listless. And it's. I walked into class one day and I said, hey guys, can a mind become infected? And my students said, uh, you mean a brain? And I said, no, I mean a mind. And they, they said, well, infected with what? And I was like, with bad ideas. And they said, uh, infected, is that the right word? I said, tell you what, 
you guys think about it. You talk about it. And they broke into groups and they talked about it for 20 minutes and I brought them back together and they said, yeah, this kind of makes sense to us. Now, remember, this was early 90s. The Internet hadn't become a, a, a dominant fixture in our all of our lives back then. And the phenomenon of viral memes was only beginning our awareness of that. So it took them a while to kind of reach this idea that, yeah, minds probably can become infected. And I asked them, all right, guys, are we talking about other people's minds or yours? And they were like, uh, both, I guess. And I said, all right, well, which of your ideas are legit and which of them are just mind parasites? And you could have heard a pin drop. Yeah. They were like, damn, right? <laughs> um, how do I know? Right. Which is which. And then one of them said, is that what we're trying You're trying to teach us in this critical thinking class? How, how to inoculate our minds, basically, how to protect our minds from mind parasites? I went bingo. Hmm. That's what we're trying to do. I said, take that, that boring old textbook, throw it away, go out and research how the body's immune system works. Come back and tell me how it works. And then we're going to figure out how to make our mental immune systems work equally well. And man, that class just came alive. Um, I think, I feel like I, I kind of stumbled upon a better way to teach critical thinking. In fact, it goes beyond anything that the whole critical thinking paradigm was able to create in the, in, over the last hundred years. So I kind of like to think that this cognitive immunology approach to, to building resistance to bad ideas is the paradigm that's going to replace the critical thinking paradigm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's funny. I mean, it, it's perfect, right? It's, it, it just makes so much sense. And, uh, you know, I think the hallmark of critical thinking, too, is that ability to um, think across disciplines, right? Cross-disciplinary. And I think that's part of what that cognitive immunology is, right? You said, hey, go out and study biology and come back and tell me how some of these concepts relate. Yeah, it's kind of neat. I've always kind of had fun mucking around in the boundaries between disciplines and find that uh, when you when you can borrow the tools of one discipline and apply them in a new domain, that often oftentimes interesting things happen. Yeah, and um, I'm I'm a big believer in that. I, I'm like somebody who likes to believe that uh, there's still a place in the world for generalists. You know. Um, I here here <laughs> right. I'm I'm always trying to learn new things and do different things and then figure out how they all relate together. So, so so Joel, can I interrupt you on that? Did, have you, yeah. you ever heard the that some wit had it came up with a definition for a specialist, which is somebody who knows more and more about less and less until he knows everything about nothing? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. As, as a fellow generalist like you, I, I suppose that makes me somebody who knows less and less about more and more until we know nothing about everything. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> so who are some philosophers or, or paradigms that influenced um, your work as you started developing the theory after you sort of had this uh, this um, eureka moment with your students? Yeah. Um, I actually spent the better part of 30 years trying to get clear about a lot of these concepts. I mean, it was really hard to brush away all the, the cobwebs and all, all the all the ways in which traditional ways of thinking about these issues, all, all the words that 
say, epistemologists, right? So the branch of philosophy devoted to understanding how we reason and know things is called epistemology. And epistemology has a whole jargon, and I was trained in how to use that jargon. And it turns out that that jargon just isn't very useful for helping your mind spot and remove bad ideas. But the concepts of cognitive immunology are much better at it. And the the, the hardest job I had was to clear away all the all the things that were just complicating the picture and making it hard to see clearly. So that was a lot. That took up a lot of my time from the early '90s to you know 2017 when I when I got the 2018 when I got the book contract. But um, uh, I've discovered though that there are some really interesting precedents. To what I've been working on. So a psychologist named, uh, oh golly, why am I blanking on it? Uh, in, it'll come back to me in a minute. In the early 1960s, a, a psychologist discovered that if you expose a mind to a weakened form of an argument, the mind will often develop resistance to stronger versions of the same argument. Hmm. He immediately noticed the parallel with inoculation, right? So if you expose the body's immune system to a weakened form of a virus, you'll develop often resistance to full-strength versions of the same virus. So he said, whoa, you know, the, the mind behaves as if it has an immune system. He didn't come right out and, says it, say, and say it does the way I do. Mm. But he began to compile evidence as early as the 1950s that minds do, in fact, have immune systems. And more recently, uh, he called them. He called his theory inoculation theory, and more recently, inoculation theorists have been working out how we can inoculate minds against conspiracy thinking, for example, or how you inoculate minds against science denial or climate denial. Um, and another really interesting piece of research came out of uh, Canada just last year. Um, the research team discovered that if you start to compromise on the idea that new evidence should change your mind, if you push back, if you make a, a habit, a mental habit of brushing aside good evidence and hanging on to the beliefs you have, even though the new evidence suggests that you should change it, you make a habit of that, you become more susceptible to many, many different kinds of deluded thinking. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that's a big problem, especially nowadays. Um, so, how did now? How did you go about testing your theory? Was it mostly sort of a Socratic um, thought experiment, or were you bouncing it off other people? Or yeah, so I'm not an empirical scientist, which means I don't put on a lab coat, go into a laboratory, and get my hands dirty. Um, we philosophers do thought experiments where we test ideas against other ideas. We test ideas against the evidence that other people gather. <laughs> um, and we test ideas in conversation by bouncing them off people who view things differently and who challenge us to, to rethink them. So um, my method, which is pretty consistent with how philosophers do business historically, uh, is to take an idea I find interesting, polish it up a little bit, and share it with friends or share it with people who I know don't agree and see what they have to say. 
and then try to see whether the idea uh, withstands criticism, whether it withstands scrutiny. And as long as it continues to do so, I keep polishing it up and refining it. Sometimes, I mean, often the idea needs modification or needs clarification or needs to be refined or limited in a certain way. So for a, lot, a, a lot of times when you throw out a generalization or a new, a, a rough and ready idea, it turns out it's easy to come up with a counterexample or easy to come up with an objection. You can either throw out the whole idea and say, oh, well, that idea was spunk. Or you could say, all right, there's something wrong with it. Maybe if I scale it back in the following way or word it more carefully in this way, maybe it could withstand that objection. And then you try again. Right. So this is how philosophers test ideas. And, and even the thought experiments where the idea seems to fail, tell us something valuable, right? Because right. you, lear you learn for when, I when ideas don't withstand scrutiny, that's worth remembering. Yeah. Yeah. And again, this is very important work for um, what's going on today because, you know, there's there's a lot of fear of failure and there's a lot of, again, em empirical experiments that bear out the fact that, you know, people want to establish opinions very quickly and they want to stand by those opinions in the face of, you know, bad evidence and things. So, you know, it, it's good to get back to that, that, you know, idea of, hey, listen, you know, designing these sorts of things is it's, it's a work in progress. You know, you're not, you can't expect somebody to have the entire thing figured out from the beginning. Right. That's right. And of course, as a psychologist, you, you're probably come across the concept of fixed mindsets versus growth mindsets. So there's some really fascinating empirical work that uh, suggests that uh, people who don't put a lot of stock in, in having it all figured out, but who instead go into often discouraging situations ready to say, oh, well, I failed, but you know what? I'll try again. I, I'm, I'm growing. I've, I've learned even from my mistakes. If you bring that attitude to all everything you do, you keep learning and you learn much more rapidly than if you uh, bring what she calls a fixed mindset to the table where you basically experience um, setbacks as as a indictment of your ability and and shrink from the task of dusting yourself off and trying again. So people with a fixed mentality tend not to adjust to the reality, to new information, and they end up poorly adjusted people. People who bring a, a growth mindset to the table and who are constantly changing their minds and adjusting their mindset and letting go of their cherished convictions, they turn out to be better adjusted. Right. Yeah, you know, a good example is like the Wright brothers, right? If they had a fixed mindset, you know, they crash their first airplane, they say, well, it didn't work, we'll go back to bicycles, right? But, <laughs> you know, Perfect but, example. Yeah, you know, it might be expensive and it might, it might cause you a couple bumps and bruises in the process, but eventually you'll get a plane in the air and then, you know, 60 years later, you get a man on the moon. So that's why it's important to, you know, stick with things and, and not not to pretend you always have the answers, right? You know, wherever you're always searching, um, you know, you're trying to develop theories and test them and things. And that's, that's an important part of the, the entire process. It isn't just the end goal. It's everything in between as well. It, it is. And it can be hard though to, to, tr you have, it takes some work to train your mind to exp to experience setbacks as, as, as growth 
as as growth opportunities rather than as you know identity defining mm. right that can yeah. be hard and i mean especially if life has been difficult life has thrown you some really tough challenges lately what the more we experience setbacks the more fragile our identities our, our sense of self becomes and the more tempted we are to hitch our identities to the next success but the, every time you do that though you can't it gets harder to learn from failure right and that almost you know i don't know if that falls into the uh the definition of being a mind parasite, but it almost kind of is that way, right? Because all of a sudden you start to tell yourselves, well, maybe I'm just not good at math, or maybe I can't learn a new language, or I can't do these things, right? You know? Well, the, that's a wonderful example. So if, if you start saying, well, I'm just no good at math, that is a mind parasite because it'll, it'll prevent you from learning. Mm -hmm. But if you also enter the thing saying, oh, I've already got everything in math figured out, right? Um, so lack of humility, too much humility can undermine learning and growth, but uh, too little of it can also do that. Yeah. So um, last formative question. Um, can you describe some of the responses you've received to com cognitive immunology, um, whether good or bad, you know, at the beginning or towards the end? What, what, what have other philosophers or scientists or people had to say about it? Uh, I've definitely heard from a lot of, so uh, I was fortunate enough to present my ideas on the Joe Rogan experience uh, on the day my book launched. And I've heard from many, many people who really liked that podcast and who want to help with the task of developing this science and begin applying it to, you know, ending the epidemics of unreason that are so so damaging to our world. So that's why I founded this cognitive immunology research collaborative. I call it Circe. Um, it, it's basic. I, I think that cognitive immunology could transform the human condition every bit as profoundly as immun as the original immunology transformed the human condition. I mean, immunology has taught us things that have saved hundreds of thousands, hundreds of millions of human lives over the last two centuries. And I think learning how to control cognitive contagion, to prevent cognitive contagion, could save a comparable number of lives and do an enormous amount to promote human well-being. Now, uh, I don't, I haven't had many opportunities to share these ideas with uh, other scientists yet. So I'm eager to hear, hear back from them. Um, you, you know, I've shared them with a few dozen. And some of them have joined the Cersei board. Uh, others have expressed great enthusiasm for it. But the idea hasn't the ideas have not yet been raked over the coals in, in academic journals. Right. I'm sure and, it's coming. Yeah, yeah. And you know, that's a that's a hard thing to weather, right? Because anytime you're, you're sort of presenting a new idea, there's going to be some people that think you're a quack or this or the other thing because it's new, you know? Exactly. And so, you know, as a philosopher, you, you're trusting that you've, you've gone through your, your process of examining the idea and that it is something legitimate and that, you know, other people will take it from there and, and uh, run with it. Let's, let's talk well, about some of them. Philosophers are, no, no, excuse me. Philosophers can be really hard on each other's ideas. Yeah, yeah. One of the things you develop in the philosophy world is thick skin. Right. Um, it's, it, and it's not as though, you know, 
hard criticisms of my ideas don't sting, but I know that having to listen and learn from those objections is important to the, if I want to continue growing and developing better ideas. So uh, it's a rough and tumble world of philosophy, and sometimes it can be really hard to take, it can be hard on the ego. But if you learn to separate your yourself and your ideas, you, your ideas aren't you, right? Mm -hmm. And if they turn out to be lacking, that doesn't mean you're lacking. If you can embrace that uh, attitude, you can withstand the rigors of philosophical idea testing and still come out relatively sane. I, nice. I say relatively sane. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent advice. I appreciate it. So let's move into the uh, the applied section of the podcast. Um, first question, uh, do aberrant ways of thinking influence polarization and tribalism, or does tribalism influence aberrant ways of thinking? Oh, interesting question. Well, I, I certainly think it's true that tribalism causes aberrant ways of thinking. So there's some really good research on this. Uh, a man named Dan Cahan, a psychologist at Yale, has coined the term identity protective cognition. And, and, is, and the idea is that we evolved in small tribes and these tribes had to maintain a kind of solidarity to remain viable. And so groupthink or something like it became almost evolutionarily a, a tendency to groupthink is kind of ingrained in us, which doesn't mean you can't overcome it if you manage your cognitive affairs appropriately. But we're deeply, our thinking is deeply tribal by nature. It's very easy to slip into uh, tribal modes of thinking. But we know this now, that when your sense that you have to do battle for your ideas becomes, governs the way you think, you lose the ability to think clearly and fairly. If you become a culture warrior and try to just use reasons as weapons to defeat other people's views and to defend your own views, you will lose the ability to think clearly. Or to put it differently, your mind's immune system will become compromised. Gotcha. Yeah, there's, there's very famous um, psychology experiments along these lines where, you know, they'd have you know, a dozen people who were all in on the experiment, one person who wasn't, they'd pass around cards with lines drawn on them. Hey, which one of these lines, are these lines shorter or the same length? Oh, they're, they're the same length. By the time you get to the last person, they say, oh yeah, they're all the same length when they're actually half as long or something. So the power of other people's opinions on your thinking is, is very um, tangible. Yeah, and, and if I remember right, so, so the, the, I, I forget the name of the person who conducted the study you, you mentioned, but it's a very vivid example of how other people's opinions can actually affect not just the kind of things you say, but also the way you see things. Um, I believe they interviewed some of the test subjects who actually said that, yeah, after the, after the fourth uh, complicit actor said, yeah, those lines are all the same length, I actually started to see it that way. Yeah. So, so other people's false testimony can actually warp the way you see things. I mean, that's weird, right? Yeah, it's almost like the shaping of the mind parasite, right? Like you think about how real, real viruses and parasites work. They disguise themselves as part of the body, 
you know, sort of the same thing. You think, okay, well, all these people that I trust are saying that it's okay, so it must be okay, and it slips past your your immune system. That's actually nicely put. I I do think that many of the most difficult to eradicate mind viruses um, mimic good ideas so that they can get past the mind's defenses and sink roots into our minds. So if a word has two meanings, sometimes uh, the innocent interpretation of the word that the idea will 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 sneak past the mind's defenses on the innocent interpretation of the word but if it becomes useful to interpret to to substitute in the other definition of the word and you can turn that idea into a cudgel or into a um into something else that idea will often poison your thinking even though it snuck past the mind's defenses on the other understanding of of the relevant concept so you can see that it's very similar to biological mimicry right right yeah yeah exactly so do you think that that is basically how conspiracy theories develop or is there more at work i do think conspiracy thinking conspiracy theories are really interesting kind of class of of mind parasites um they're seductive right they they give the conspiracy theorist the sense that they're in on some big secret that they're somehow more enlightened than the vast unwashed of the rest of humanity um they also give you a sense of control so, so if if the if it feels as though the u.s government has become unresponsive to your needs as an ordinary American citizen, and you're just plain frustrated, and you feel as though nobody in Washington is listening to you. And then somebody comes along and says, yeah, the government is run by a a group of Satan-worshipping pedophiles out of the basement of a pizza shop. Um, You know, most of us with well-functioning mental immune systems say nonsense, right? Right. But if you need to feel as though there's a simple conspiracy underlying it all if that gives you a sense that we might wrest back control of our government from it by deposing the people in the basement of the pizza shop or whatever you can see how that might satisfy a psychological need even though it's completely delusive yeah yeah and and that that example makes a lot of sense you know thinking about it you know if you're somebody who feels like you don't have any power over the situation and uh, you you want to feel like you have some control, um, and you want to feel like you understand it better than everybody else. You, it, it's easy to fall in those sorts of things. Exactly. Um, wh- why do you think a conspiracy theory like um, that we never landed on the moon? Why do you think one like that would develop? I'm, I'm going to say something here that's potentially very embarrassing to me. I actually watched uh, one of those uh, kind of kooky TV shows once that that built a case that the moon landing was staged. And it was really well done. So this mm-hmm. this might be one of the only rabbit holes I've really gone down. Uh, well, okay. I've gone down a small number of rabbit holes. But this was one of them. I watched this, this kind of pseudo-scientific documentary that suggested that the moon landing was faked. And in the absence of other information, it I struck me as kind of plausible, right? Um, so I started digging and started to find that there's plenty of other people out there willing to say things that'll, I mean, if I want to believe that, 
I can find plenty of stuff to confirm it. Right. Right. I mean, basically, look, the fact if you can find the fact that you can confine for confirming information for stuff is not the true test of a reasonable belief because you can find confirming information for anything. And most of us want to confirm our our favorite beliefs. And that that's probably part of the reason that the the mind parasites are running so rampant these days is because with the Internet, you really can find like you said, things that are pretty convincing because I've, I've watched some of these things too and thought, oh man, wow. You know, and then yeah. you have to actually go and, you know, look at, you have to find other sources of information to dissuade yourself and to figure out what the truth is. But and if you don't hard, put right? in that extra effort, yeah, if you don't put in the extra effort, then it's pretty easy to believe that, hey, we didn't land on the moon or something like that. Yeah. And so it turns out that if you ask yourself, gee, can I find any confirming evidence? You, the answer is almost always yes but it'll lead you to embrace all kinds of falsehoods. If that's your test of a reasonable belief, it will lead you astray. The solution is to substitute a test like the following. Is there any anything that might falsify this belief? If you go out looking for, for information that might undermine the idea and it still withstands a rigorous search, then you might have something worth believing. But that's a very different test. In, in my book, I argue that um, the first standard of reasonable belief is similar to one proposed by Plato way back in ancient Athens. And the second one is very similar to one proposed by Socrates, his mentor. And that even though the platonic conception of reasonable belief is, can you find a good reason for it? Even though that one has seized hold of the philosophical imagination and helped shape our civilization in really interesting ways, it's the, fundamentally the wrong idea. And that we should go back to the Socratic test, namely, can this withstand rigorous questioning? Because that's the better standard of reasonable belief and the key to strengthening our minds' immune systems. Yeah, and it's what the, the scientific disciplines are based on. So, you know, everything that we have in modern society is sort of based off of, hey, can we disprove this thing in order to make it work? Um, do you have time for a few more questions? I know you're on a tight time. Yeah, go, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, so, so what's the secret to achieving deep mental immunity? I think the first thing is learn to listen to your doubts. Your doubts are actually anti mind's antibodies, and they're trying to tell you something. Um, a lot of times, a little tiny voice in the back of your head will say, something's not quite right here, or this doesn't quite add up, or you know what, I have a hard time squaring this with other things I know. If you listen to that voice, it will often draw your attention to objectively problematic features of an idea and alert you to the, to the fact that it is in fact a mind parasite. So learn to listen to your doubts. And corollary of that, learn to listen to other people's doubts. If other people have objections or challenges, learn to treat those as opportunities to learn and to discard ideas that might turn you into a fool. Don't treat them as threats. Treat them as opportunities to learn. Right. Yeah, if you were developing your theory and somebody brought up objections and you just said, nah, well, that's whatever, and then you forged on with it, somebody else along the line is going to find that same chink in the armor and, and you know, expose some different thinking, you know? So, exactly. Well, I, if, if somebody one, has, pardon me, I, I interrupted, please. No, you're all right. Go ahead. Well, well one potentially uncomfortable consequence of this is that almost nothing is established once and for all. 
I mean, apart from maybe a few theorems in mathematics, um, a consequence of this Socratic standard of reasonable belief is that everything you think is 100% firmly based, a, a brand new challenge could arise tomorrow and force you to rethink it. So it, it this reinforces a kind of a key element of the scientific attitude, which is everything is to some degree provisional. You have to be ready to rethink things, even your most cherished convictions. And it can be really hard to let go of a cherished conviction, especially if you've built your life around it. But anything less is less than cognitively responsible. Right. And I think that that's part of the problem we're having with with science deniers nowadays. I mean, the, the past year and a half has been an experiment in this, right, with with COVID. COVID comes around, scientists say, hey, listen, based off our best information, this is what we think. And then a couple of weeks later, it changes. A couple of weeks later, it changes. And, and eventually you get people saying, oh, scientists don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what's going on. Well, no, in, in light of new information, they're refining their advice, you know. Um, so it's, it is an important thing to, uh, to look at the, the doubts and like you said, science isn't in, in the business of proving things so much as disproving things. It's all, it's all in flux. You're triangulating the truth is what we like to call it, right? Yeah. You have these things and you're using the best evidence you have to try to find something actionable. And, and I really like the way you, you put that. It's really important that you understand that science is a fallible but self-correcting enterprise. And as it self-corrects, and, and if you get a lot of scientific eyeballs on a problem, you're essentially crowdsourcing the testing of that idea. And that can be enormously powerful. That's one of the things that makes science really special. But the other thing that makes science really special is that scientists are resolutely committed to letting go of ideas that prove to be less than fully adequate and that's that's the magic sauce in science um science is a shining example of what the human mind and in particular uh, a group of human minds can do and if we apply that same ethos to politics and ethics and religion i think our species could go very very far nice so when we identify we have uh, compromised mental immune systems um, how do we best go about rectifying it? Is it mostly sort of that listening to our doubts and following sort of a Socratic method? Or do you have any other tips to go along with that? Yeah, let me come up with a with one or two more. So I have a word for this, for a commitment to yielding to good reasons. So um, the, science, the, the core of the scientific attitude is if you give me the better reason, I'll back down and concede that you know, you win that round of the reasoning game. Um, I call this idea reasons fulcrum because reasons are like levers. We use them to pry good ideas out, pry bad ideas out of our skulls and shoehorn good ones in. But levers only work if you have a fulcrum to brace them against, right? And reasons can't work to change minds if those minds aren't committed to yielding to good ones. So when we begin to compromise our commitment to, to this norm, reasons fulcrum, that's the moment our minds start to become unhinged. So I actually think that a, if each and every child in this world was brought up to have a deep commitment to reasons fulcrum, we could, within a generation, transform our world into one that's enormously better. When you understand how fundamental that norm is to science, to uh, dialogue, to problem solving, 
uh, to engineering, to civil dispute resolution. Um, it's so fundamental to all of those things that if we can begin to incrementally enhance our commit collective commitment to that norm, I think we can transform the world in very powerful ways and in very short order. But it's going to take um, a massive effort to help people understand this really crucial norm and to learn how to integrate it into their lives. Right. It's especially hard because, um, you know, f philosophy and, and like you said, your critical thinking class, these are not things that are um, taught in a regular curriculum. You know, you have to kind of seek them out. Um, yeah. Which is unfortunate because I think that, like you said, if we were to teach people with these growing up, I, I learned it growing up. Um, you know, I, I was I was homeschooled. My mom gave me a logic course. She gave me a, a nice. bunch of other things. And, you know, that more than anything is what sort of inspired my intellectual curiosity. Right. I started to think of these things and then everything else that I learned branched off of that, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's very important to have those sorts of things. That's All right. Cool. Last question. And I'll, I'll let you go. Right. What is an immune strengthening dialogue and how can we use it? So philosophers have been trying to figure out how to think well for a long time, and we don't always get it right. But we realized early on, and by we I mean the ancient Greek philosophers, realized early on that if you get together with a bunch of friends and you challenge each other's ideas gently in, a, in an affirming, friendly way, and engage together in the process of, of, I call it collaborative idea testing, or, you know, um, basically cooperative idea testing. Now, notice that the idea of cooperative idea testing encompasses both cooperation and a bit of competition. Mm. So if I float an idea and you say, I'm not so sure about that and start poking holes at it, there's an element of competition there. But if an underlying uh, commitment to our relationship, an underlying commitment to maintaining trust, an underlying commitment to remaining friends remains in place, that conversation can be both affirming and illuminating and enlightening, uh, and it can help us become wiser together. So uh, the Scottish philosopher David Hume said, the truth springs from arguments among friends. And I th in, in that formulation, he captured an ancient bit of philosophical wisdom, namely is that we have to spend time um, in friendly, but also a little bit competitive conversation without taking it personally when our ideas get shot down. In fact, when somebody shoots your idea down, bite your tongue, bite back the effort to the impulse to fault the guy and say, Thanks for setting me straight on that. I, I'm, I'm glad glad you brought that to my attention before I really embarrassed myself by putting that idea out there with non-friends. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, because like you said, we all we all have mind parasites. We all have aberrant ways of thinking, and um, you know when those things are brought to light, the uh, the attitude shouldn't be anger. It should it should really be gratitude. Hey, there you go. For pointing you, that out to me. You know. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. All right. Uh, once again, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. This has been a great discussion. Um, do you want to plug your book again before we sign off? Yeah, thanks, Joel. Um, yeah. yeah, it's been a pleasure for me as well. I'll give your viewers here a, a look at it. It's called Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. You can find it 
out there on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, bookstores everywhere. And I uh, hope you'll check it out um, and help me uh, help you change the world. All right, Dr. Andy Norman, thanks for being on the show. And until next time, keep pondering.